0: Assalamu alaikum. Uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, uh, here in the Western Hemisphere, in North America, in the United States, or in the Arab region, the Middle East, in the Islamic world. My name is uh, John Duke Anthony. I'm the President and CEO of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. This is our 40th year, uh, having been t- founded in 1983, as a nonprofit, non-governmental uh, organization uh, that is uh, wedded to a vision of placing the relationship between the United States and its Arab friends, Arab allies, Arab partners, on as firm a foundation as possible, than it has been, than it is now, or is likely to be, unless a, good, a, a goodly number of people on all sides uh, have this uh, goal and share it in common. And and worked uh, as closely as possible uh, to to make it achieved. And the the vision is to place this relationship uh, on uh, a five footed stool in terms of strategic cooperation on matters pertaining to war and peace, economics, having to do with inflation, prices, uh, commodity, uh, material well being, uh, uh, trade rules, regulations, and a rules based order. Uh, Base still anchored heavily uh, since the post-World War II uh, period. And then we have the political aspect, which is the most tension-filled, problematic, and most difficult to discern because of the competing uh, foreign policy needs, concerns, and interests of the various players that want to have influence, especially in Arabia and the Gulf which remains vital to the well-being of not just the peoples of the region, not just their bilateral partners, but uh, uh, humanity as a whole. And we're focusing on a topic uh, that will bring uh, three specialists to bear with their accumulated experience and wisdom and insight and analyses on matters pertaining uh, to uh, Russia and China, and their competition with the United States, an increasingly effective competition in some areas, exaggerated in other areas, and yet to occur in in still other areas. And the National Council's mission is one word, simply education. And this is what we're doing in this particular session here. How is it it faring the, the competition between Russia and China? Is it the threat that uh, many people see that various opinion writers and magazines, newspapers, uh, voices on radio and televised uh, uh, sessions? uh, Or is it uh, a healthy, thus far, competition amongst uh, the great powers of the world? uh, Something that we need not exaggerate for sure uh, and need not exacerbate even more uh, for certain. Uh, But how is it that the United States is faring uh, with China and Russia uh, increasingly uh, seeking to take advantage of America's pitfalls, America's disadvantages, America's stumbling, America's shortcomings, America's limitations? And the flip side, of course, of that is that they're not faring as well as one might think or the media and uh, and sources of so-called informed comment would have one believe um, uh, because of the depth and the breadth and the diversity of, uh, of America's engagement, involvement in the region. We're talking about an 80-year relationship uh, between the United States and these countries and uh, a 40-year relationship with the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. So let's not make too much to do uh, with this, but at the same time not be na- naive and take advantage and not be smug, not be arrogant, uh, uh, which uh, one can say we're guilty of. So here we are with the uh, situation approximating in the eyes of some a potential uh, revival of the Cold War of the 50s and the 60s and one side of it, at least, in the sense of the United States trying to pressure these countries to side with the United States against Russia in terms of what Russia's done to Ukraine and perhaps not finished doing uh, with Ukraine. And also with regard to China, which uh, during the uh, 1990s, uh, the Clinton administration, was uh, uh, catering to the pronounced needs of Americans uh, wanting to fulfill their consumer needs, their material needs at at the lowest possible price for good quality. And those goals were largely being accomplished only for there to be a backlash uh, for incoming uh, demonstrations afterwards to say, well, uh, Asia stole our jobs and uh, uh, we've exported our jobs. And look at our workers, we're being screwed. And so this is wrong. We have to put sanctions on China, curbs on the trade with China. And likewise with Russia, Uh, we cannot uh, uh, tolerate what Russia has done with Ukraine with an inability to put ourselves in the shoes of, say, Moscow, uh, which would say that we have rubbed their noses uh, in the wounds of the humiliation of the defeat of international communism. For uh, Moscow and the capitals of the GCC countries, interdependency is a fine concept where both sides can have mutuality of benefit, a reciprocity of reward, where both sides gain, and all uh, boats uh, will lift uh, with rising tides. And likewise with China. China doesn't have the kinds of grievances uh, towards the West that, uh, that Russia has, uh, but it has grievances nonetheless. Uh, so China has been saying Asia should be for Asians. And uh, just as the United States has said f- from the Monroe doctrine that this Western hemisphere is to be the exclusive hegemonic domain of the United States in North America. No, we have not reciprocated. Where's the golden rule here? would be the Chinese uh, uh, statement there, uh, that we uh, do not allow that particular concept to prevail where Asia should be for the Asians. And the Chinese view, and to the Russian view as well, the United States has long since overreached, and it's far extended from its uh, natural boundaries. But thus far, China has the advantage of not colonizing or invading or uh, 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 occupying any of the Arab uh, countries or the Middle Eastern ones, for that matter, uh, Russia cannot say the same. Uh, so each comes with their own uh, uh, respective disadvantages and advantages on the uh, uh, interdependency aspect. China needs the oil and gas resources of Arabia and Gulf. Russia needs them in a different way, not as a source of supply, but as a partner in terms of determining uh, price, in terms of supplies, in terms of strategic uses to which oil and gas is finite, depletable uh, resource and commodity upon which all humanity relies and depends. And we have uh, David Rondell to address this, or aspects of it, uh, and to take issue with anything I've said. And for all of us to listen with great care, because here's an individual that does have uh, the requisite uh, empathy. I've known David since uh, 1976 when he was a student in Oxford and I was uh, uh, lecturing uh, there in the, in the middle 1970s. And Michael Gaffella and the two of them are partners in business and have been partners in the geopolitical dynamics of American interests and policies and actions and attitudes uh, for the last quarter of a century towards Arabia, the Gulf, and particularly with regard to the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. I'm going to turn this now over to Colonel Abbas Tahoop, a member of the National Council's Board of Directors, as I mentioned, former uh, defense attaché for all of American armed forces in the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia and the army attaché in that same e- embassy, and before retiring, a senior most uh, uh, political military affairs advisor to the uh, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs, uh, Colonel Dahook.
1: Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, for the introduction, and uh, good day to uh, all our view- uh, viewers uh, near and far, and welcome to our uh, discussing uh, discussion uh, today on uh, weathering Ch- Chinese and Russian competition in Arabia and the Gulf. Uh, good morning to, uh, to Mike and uh, good morning to David. Uh, uh, let's uh, uh, just dive right uh, uh, right through it. I think we'll, uh, let's talk about uh, China. There's a lot of things going on recently uh, between China and, uh, and the region, mainly the Gulf region. And I will uh, uh, welcome uh, uh, David's uh, remark on, on this, David.
2: Good morning. Uh, I think the first thing to note about the uh, Chinese relationship with Saudi Arabia, is that it is not new uh china has had a relationship with saudi arabia for 40 years the it really began with the chinese uh selling the saudis or providing them with uh ballistic missiles back during the first uh, war between iraq and iran and the saudis felt that they uh could become vulnerable to Iraqi or, well, actually not Iraqi, Iranian at that time, uh, ballistic missiles. And so they obtained the East Wind missile from the Chinese. Uh, they sent their ambassador uh, to Washington, actually, uh, Prince uh, Bandar bin Sultan, went and purchased these missiles. And those missiles have been upgraded several times. They have uh, facilities for their maintenance, and some would say even for manufacturing parts of them, in Saudi Arabia. So this relationship is not new, is the point I'm making. It was expanded beyond ballistic missiles uh, in 1999, when they signed a formal agreement relating to oil. Saudi Arabia is now one of the largest, often the largest supplier of crude oil to uh, China, and that relationship is also expanded to include uh, petrochemicals uh, and refining facilities, which the Saudis, often in connection with ExxonMobil, have uh, built in China. And the Chinese have also built facilities in Saudi Arabia. So the military and economic relationship is not new. Uh, it nor is the visit of Chairman Xi to Saudi Arabia, the first one, which we had just a few months ago. He actually first went to Saudi Arabia in 2016. And at that point, he signed something that made Saudi Arabia a comprehensive strategic partner of China. So this is now at least, you know, seven years old. And this relationship revolves around many things, uh, it expanded beyond oil, beyond ballistic missiles, and it now includes things like technology transfer, uh, telecommunications, uh, foreign direct investment. The Saudis often turn to the Chinese for a vote in the United Nations Security Council. And the Chinese have been very involved in the in the building, if you will, of the um, Saudi infrastructure. The Chinese were really the ones who built the Saudi railroads, which have uh, expanded dramatically in the last six years. Um, the I, I will tell you a story that uh, was now almost 15 years ago. Mike and I were visiting a little city down near the Yemen border called Jizan, <laughs> a dust-blown, uh, impoverished part of Saudi Arabia. And we checked into a hotel and... Uh, we were astonished. I was astonished. I, maybe Mike wasn't astonished. I was astonished that the hotel was uh, completely full of Chinese people. And there was Chinese restaurants all over Jizan. And we thought, what is going on here? And mm-hmm. lo and behold, Huawei was doing the telecom. And there were hundreds of Chinese people in Jizan 15 years ago. Uh, and to be honest, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Huawei. I said, who is Huawei? Who are these guys? Anyways, the point is that this relationship between Saudi Arabia and China is not new. Now, for most of this period, the Chinese have tried to balance their relations with many Middle Eastern countries, most notably the, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Unlike the United States, the Saudis do not, or the the Chinese do not usually adopt a policy of you're either with us or against us. They're, if you will, more of a big tent uh, power. So they have tried to balance their relationship between Saudi Arabia and its most prominent protagonist, Iran. I think recently uh, they have begun to tilt a bit towards Saudi Arabia. And I will give you some examples of why I think that. Uh, During the most recent, first of all, let's look at the trade figures. Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, or China and Saudi Arabia, have about $65 billion worth of annual trade. 65 for Saudi Arabia. For Iran, it's about 15. So the Trade relationship with Saudi Arabia is far more important than it is the one with Iran. During Chairman Xi's last visit to Saudi Arabia, he did not stop in Tehran on the same trip. He had done that previously. He had gone to both Riyadh and Tehran. This time, he only went to Riyadh. And I think most significantly, in the announcement that was made at the end of this uh, visit, this the Chinese stated, and I should say that there were three meetings. There was a meeting between the Saudis. There was also a meeting between the Chinese and the GCC. And there was a meeting with the essentially the Arab League. And that's what the Chinese or the Saudis have done. They did it for President Biden. They did it for President Trump. They demonstrate that they are the leader, if you will, of both of these blocks, the uh, Arab League and the um, at least the de facto leader of the Arab League and, and or The one who can call meetings, shall we say? Any event. um, In the the announcement that came out from this, the Chinese said for the first time that the dispute between the UAE and Iran over the islands in the Red Sea, or in the sorry, in the Arabian Gulf, uh, or the Persian Gulf, if you like, uh, the islands of uh, Abu Musa and the Tums, uh, which are disputed between the UAE and Iran, which Iran occupied in 1971, uh, and Iran considers to be Iranian, and the UAE does not, that the Chinese said that this should be negotiated, and that the settlement should be, should be agreed upon. This incensed the Iranians, who felt that this was like the Americans saying, yeah, we need to renegotiate the border of the state of Washington with Canada. Uh, they felt this was a settled issue. So to bring this up again, they, the, the the Iranians actually called the Chinese ambassador in Tehran in uh, mm-hmm. and rebuked him for this statement. So it was, it was and it was clearly done. And so this was, in my view, a beginning of a tilt towards uh, the GCC and away from Iran. Not that they're going to eliminate their relations with Iran, but I think they recognize that their relationship with the GCC led by Saudi Arabia is more important. Uh, just to give you a quick summary of some of the other things that were agreed at that negotiation at that at the Z meeting, um there were some 40 announced 40 agreements signed, many of them like with the Americans. Often these are things that have been done long ago and they were just signing them now. But there were some new ones. Uh, and I know from talking to Saudis and to the Chinese that um the the NEOM is one of The Saudis' big projects, super projects, mega projects, they call it. Um, It's a new city they're building up near Jordan and Israel. Uh, It's very ambitious. The Chinese came and said, We would like, we can build that for you. We can do the whole thing. uh, Hmm. And we'll make that part of our uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And the Saudis said, Well, thank you, but no, thank you. Uh, We do not want NEOM to become a completely Chinese project. And we are going to maintain it as a multinational, international project with parts of it being built by a wide range of contractors, which is the case today. So they decided, and that that was a big offer on the part of the Chinese. They have the capacity to do that. It's, a, it's something the Saudis want, but the Saudis decided that they did not want to be completely aligned with the Chinese on Neon. Um They also did not. Decide that they were going to start trading oil uh, or selling oil in uh, Chinese currency. Uh, that was, again, something the Chinese would have liked to have seen. On the Chinese part, though, they, the Saudis did get something, and the Chinese have a list, if you will, of uh, countries where Chinese tourists are allowed to go. And the Saudis want to build their tourism industry. And the um, Saudi Arabia was added to that list. So that will bring some new um, tourists to say. Just to go, so that is the visit of Chairman Xi. The, there was a long-term relationship, it's, it's evolving, it's growing, and I would just finalize my thoughts with one, um, one last comment, which is to say that the Chinese and the Saudis do share many strategic interests in the Middle East, most prominently, they share an interest in the supply of oil. There are choke, choke points, uh, Suez, the Bab el mendeb the Straits of Hormuz, uh, all places where oil can be um, disrupted, the flow of oil can be disrupted. The reality is that both Saudi Arabia and China are free riders on the US Navy, which is the one that ultimately keeps these uh, choke points open. However, this, the Chinese and the Saudis do both have an interest in maintaining stability uh, in that part of the world. Um, and I would just leave you with one last thought is that the Chinese are dependent on Middle Eastern oil. They are aware of that as a strategic liability, and they are striving to reduce that liability. They are trying to reduce the amount of oil they need. They Mm -hmm. are working to produce wind power and solar power, but primarily they are working to replace Middle Eastern oil with coal. And that's something people ought to be aware of. That Chinese coal production went up 10% last year, Mm -hmm. by 10% from an already high number. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are opening coal-fired power plants at the rate of two a week. Uh, and they are pushing toward electric cars, but these electric cars are going to be run on electricity that is generated from not only from coal, but from dirty coal. So if you believe that uh, man-made CO2 is likely to change the planet, you're probably going to have to learn to adapt to that rather than stop it, because China and India... Are not planning to stop it anytime soon. Anyway, those are just a few Thanks. thoughts for the thank day. You, and I will turn it over to Michael.
1: Thank, thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, let's go on to uh, Russia. I think more action in Russia and a ro- war in Ukraine, uh, dr- uh, Iranian drone in Russia, and uh, pre- uh, they're still in Syria. So, um, uh, uh, Mike, uh, tell us a little more about what the Russians are doing in the Gulf.
3: Sure, absolutely. Well, um, one of the main things the Russians are doing in the Gulf is strengthening their. Political and military relationship with Iran, which is already strong. I mean, the Iranian nuclear program has benefited from Russian technology <clears throat> and expertise, as well as Chinese technology and North Korean technology for years. All of this stuff, whether it comes from North uh, North Korea, China, or Russia, is ultimately based on Soviet uh, era nuclear technology. And the same thing's true uh, of the Iranian nuclear uh, miss, uh, the Iranian ballistic missile uh, forces. It's all based on Russian models. So. The relationship was already there, but now we're seeing further advances. Uh, Moscow and Tehran are talking about export. Uh, you know, the Iranian acquisition of the S-400. Uh, they're talking about the uh, Iranian potential acquisition of the Su-35 fighter bombers. These would uh, these weapon systems would change the balance of power in the Gulf and make it significantly more difficult for, uh, Israel, for example, to attack um, the Iranian nuclear program. In a preventive uh, strike at some point, if they believe that the Iranians are getting too close to uh, the production of nuclear weapons. The Iranians, of course, deny that they have any such intention, but they are at this point um, massively enriching uh, uranium uh, to the 60% level uh, and even to a lesser degree the 90% level. 90% uh, in, enriched uranium, of course, is uh, the fuel that one needs to create a nuclear bomb. 60% enriched uranium can be used to create a a nuclear warhead in a matter of weeks. It's uh, extremely easy to uh, upgrade it to 90%. Uh, So these are serious developments. The Iranians are, um, of course, having a direct impact on the Russian war in Ukraine by exporting um, thousands, apparently, of uh, extremely inexpensive but very agile and effective drones, attack drones, that the Russians have been using to go after Ukrainian infrastructure, power plants, power pylons, uh, railroad infrastructure, in addition to attacking military targets, this is one of the big impacts I think of the war in Ukraine. It's it's becoming the first major conflict in which drones are playing this kind of strategic role, and Iran is proving invaluable at this point to the Russians uh, because the Russians, although they have many many advanced uh, weapon systems and and a larger overall defense industrial capacity than all of the NATO countries combined, they did not they neglected to invest uh, sufficiently in drone production, probably thinking that their their uh, cruise missiles and hypersonic vehicles were enough. And at this point, they're finding out that drones are, are crucial to their warfare in Ukraine. And so this is a new dimension, their strategic relationship with, uh, with Iran. At the same time that the Russian uh, relationship with Iran is, is booming, uh, Russia remains tightly linked to Saudi Arabia, which sees Iran as its greatest strategic threat. Um, the linkage between Moscow and Riyadh is different. It's It's all about oil. Um, You know, the three largest oil producers in the world are, of course, the United States, uh, the Russian Federation, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia um, and and Russia are linked to the OPEC Plus Alliance. Essentially, uh, OPEC Plus, although it contains several dozen countries, all of them oil producers, at the end of the day, it boils down to Moscow um, um, and Riyadh in terms of oil pricing. Uh, By adjusting their oil production in tandem, they can have a major impact. On oil prices, both countries need this cooperation. Um, Moscow needs oil prices to fund its war uh, in Ukraine, and uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia needs, uh, of course, high uh, oil prices to fund its modernization program and the twenty thirty plan. So um, this cooperation is, is going to con- continue no matter what happens uh, in the rest of the relationship. But when one looks at how uh, you know from uh, the point of view of Riyadh, Moscow is both a friend and if we. Can use the term frenemy. It's really it it brings us to another major point, which is that the end of the Cold War did not lead, as some said back in the day, to the end of history. Instead, we've slowly been coming back to a revival of 19th century style great power politics, and that's what we see in the region right now with the Chinese, the Russians, uh, the Indians, all pursuing their own interests in the Gulf, and all creating uh, constantly shifting alliance patterns. And that's what we see uh, Russia doing. Russia. Uh, ever since their intervention in Syria 2014 has really emerged as a major player in the region. We look at the Middle East and we see, you know, something that is on the other side of the world into the east. The Russians look at the same territories and they see a portion of the global south that's right on their border. Uh, and that uh, has a direct impact on how they, they pursue these interests. Um, the Saudi role in the Ukraine war is worth mentioning. Um, of course, by um, buying Russian oil and now Russian diesel, They're directly supporting Moscow's uh, financial ability to to fund its war effort. At the same time, they just recently made a donation, rather large one, of $400 million uh, in humanitarian assistance to the Ukrainian government, and Riyadh has played a key role in prisoner exchanges between the two sides. So it seems to me that they're trying to play a a balancing act, um, maintaining reasonable relations with both the West and the Ukrainian government on the one hand, um, and uh, with their Russian Energy partners on the other, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that um, Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia, in addition to cooperating on oil pricing and production, are uh, in direct competitors in terms of oil marketing, particularly in the case of their two biggest customers, China and India. Russia has had to pivot away from Western Europe in terms of its oil and natural gas and refined product exports. Um, its largest uh, customer right now for these things is is the People's Republic of China. Russian oil exports to China have hit 2.1 million barrels a day at this point uh, as of February, and their exports to India, which were um, really de minimis um, a few years ago, are now at 1.6 million barrels a day. So um, right now, Russian oil exports to India um, equal the uh, oil exports to India, both Saudi Arabia and Iraq combined, Mm -hmm. which is the first time that's ever happened. Much of this oil is being re-exported, of course, because in order to get market share in China and in India, steal it from the Saudis, the Russians have to sell their oil at a discount of about $20 a barrel. And so both China and India, and to a certain extent, perhaps Saudi Arabia, are re-exporting some of this uh, Russian oil and Russian refined products uh, to Western markets. Many Western European countries that are very proud of their efforts to block Russian uh, crude oil and refined products from the European market are actually simply uh, re- re-importing these, uh, these products from third countries. Thanks very much, us.
1: No, uh, uh, thank you, Mike, for your remarks. Before I uh, go to uh, uh, some uh, questions, I'm going to add some uh, atmospherics, uh, basically based on uh, talking to our friends in the, in the region. Uh, I, I was also in Riyadh last week for a, for a week and before that I was in ideX for a week and uh, last year attended the FII for that day it was in the desert and other uh, visits um, the way I see the majority of the of the consensus from the uh, the people we talked to uh, on the, let's see specifically on the uh, on the war um, against uh, Ukraine uh, they uh, they re- they wanted the United States to remain uh, strong uh, and influential uh, power in Europe but at the same time, they don't want the Russians uh, uh, to lose, uh, fearing a lot of things, fearing the uh, you know uh, food shortages, uh, f- f- fearing the unknown, fearing the consequences of war. I mean they, you know in the Middle East you know what the consequences of uh, uh, Iraq and uh, Yemen and uh, so on. So uh, they're, uh, they're looking at it from a different uh, prison. The same thing they look at the, uh, and the, the world around them at the uh, strategic level, they divided the three countries in a different uh, pile. for example Russia, China, and, and United States and both you uh, uh, Mike and David talked a little bit about, uh, for example, we talked about Russia that it fits on the OPEC uh, Plus and has this uh, you know oil politics. Um, uh, so Saudi Arabia has to uh, work with them. After all, oil is the is the. Uh, um, uh, the world world runs on oil. So they have to have that kind of relationship with uh, with Russia. China also, David uh, mentioned that they do have a strategic missile capability from China. They have uh, the, uh, China buys, uh, I think 70% of their oil from uh, from Saudi Arabia. There's other, other uh, consumable parts and so on. And the United States, we all know the United States has a big presence, right? So the big uh, uh, presence for uh, DOD presence in there. So it's uh, important for uh, security. And uh, and also on security cooperation, especially on the uh, buying high end uh, uh, items. I mean, uh, they'll continue to buy F-15s and Patriot missiles and all these high end items from from United States. They might do, buy something others like uh, vehicles or armored vehicles from other countries. Uh, but they continue to have uh, this uh, strength uh, with uh, with the United States. So they they, they look at them at these uh, three different uh, the pillars, and and they also they know from looking around what's happening around them. They know that the uh, the western powers prepared, uh, pretty much uh, decided they are, and also they determined to, um, uh, to deprive Russia from its international status. They want to actually contain Russia. Uh, maybe is a step to counter China in the, in the future, but th- this is a very obvious that they're trying to do that and, and also not only just contain that, and if you see what the Biden administration talks, they want to base, uh, uh, remove it from the uh, international decision-making process. They want to try that to be really, really uh, you know weak and not able to uh, do that. Uh, on the G7, G20, the G7 also G7 countries, they're very united on the international affairs. I don't think there is uh, much uh, um, uh, gray area between them. But on the G20, where Saudi Arabia comes in, they're not divided. And, and Saudi Arabia is a voice in there. there, is a different voice uh, to, uh, to bring in uh, uh, other, uh, other voices from, from, the, uh, from the international arena. Uh, and also, Saudi Arabia has, you know, plays a little bit with the BRICS, the uh, uh, Countries, so there's a venue in there to uh, to get involved in the international arena outside the uh, the uh, G20. Um, On uh, we've talked a little bit about war on Ukraine. You uh, uh, you, David, uh, uh, you mentioned about the prisoner exchange. This is how Saudi Arabia is, is staying neutral, but also getting involved on this prisoner exchange on the aid. Uh, $400 million aid uh, packet. Uh, they also voted against the war in the New Delhi in the G20. So the, the Saudis uh, did that. And they also, other Saudi other Gulf countries, uh, voted uh, uh, with the UN resolution against the war and uh, um, um, against the Russian war in Ukraine. So it was 141 countries voted against it. And the Gulf, uh, so that's where, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, uh, they were part of that. I can sum up that all that kind uh, of uh, by, by a statement from the uh, foreign, uh, Saudi Foreign Mr. Um, uh, Faisal uh, uh, Ben Farhan. He, he when he was in India, he said, and I'm, I'm quoting what he said here. I thought it's pretty interesting. He said, uh, "We can't allow the global agenda to be set by a minority of states. Everybody has to have a voice, and Saudi Arabia has the responsibility to amplify this voice." So I think that's what Saudi Arabia, is or, or by association, obviously the, the Gulf states with them, the, uh, they see themselves as the same thing. They need to be, they need to uh, be a part of the uh, uh, the formula. They need to be on the seat, and they're not uh, want to uh, just look, wait, and uh, take what the Western powers uh, dictate uh, to them. Um, In the meantime, we see what's going on on the US policy in the Middle East. We see the uh, the military and political battles in there and the Middle East uh, suffering a lot of uh, uh, great difficulties. Uh, Are not effective. I mentioned, you know, what happened in Afghanistan and also uh, Iraq. The recent visit uh, of the uh, our Secretary of Defense to Iraq this is as a positive thing. It's nice to uh, enhance the relationship with Iraq. But he was he did not announce his visit. That's a great indicator that uh, Iraq is still not a safe country for our Secretary to announce his visit to go there. Uh, so that's also uh, uh, telling. Uh, lastly, I, I mentioned I was in Riyadh last week, and just to tell you, give a snapshot in the hotel I'm staying in. Uh, and in one week, you have the President Eretria was there for two days. As you know, President Eretria is very close to Russia and they're voting with Russia and the United Nations. So having them in Saudi Arabia and courted by the Saudi government, it's a good thing for uh, a lot of things, especially for the Western powers in the United States He was in there. The Arch, uh, um, uh, Archbishop of Vienna, uh, also he was uh, in there talking about the, uh, he said his wishes are the freedom of religion and freedom of expression for Saudi Arabia. So that was his words. So that's something, uh, you know, uh, going on in there. Prince Hamid Ben-Saman also came in, and there was a a uh, uh, public-private partnership event where the Saudi government uh, uh, invested about $1.3 trillion just to improve the private sector. So that's uh, also going on. And the last one I will mention, also the same week, they had the International Conference on Justice and basically, try to bring AI to justice, to try to streamline justice. To to to, uh, uh, to uh, instead of having uh, different judges and and and, and different uh, opinions on a lot of things, they're trying to use AI to streamline it and uh, make it uh, consistent. And uh, during that event, uh, they gave uh, they issued the first license for three foreign uh, law firms to operate in Saudi Arabia. So what I'm trying to say is that the 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 young people in the in the region they're uh, they're staying away from politics from isms and they're moving forward on a strategy and uh, they're not looking back. So with that, uh, I think I'll ask a couple of uh, questions. I'll start with the questions from uh, the audience here. Um, There's one question we mentioned on the $400 million um, uh, that are given to Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, The question is, uh, do you see any string attached uh, uh, with this uh, this donation or is just uh, uh, simply humanitarian uh, assistance to Ukraine? Anybody, uh, Dave or or Mike?
3: Uh, In my opinion, I don't see strings attached to it. I think that what we're looking at is an attempt by Saudi Arabia to. Remain neutral in the conflict. I mean, obviously, Ukraine needs uh, Ukraine needs a great deal of humanitarian assistance at, at this point. Um, you know, we in the United States now are paying, for example, uh, because of the essential collapse of the Ukrainian economy and the massive damage to their infrastructure. We're paying for uh, pension, government pensions in Ukraine. We're paying the salaries of the entire government bureaucracy. So, the four hundred million dollars uh, was was a, an excellent move on the part of the Saudis. I agree. It's helped the Ukrainians tremendously. I don't really see uh any any uh, strings attached with it kingdom's been a major uh, provider of international assistance in crises like this for years and in term the only political aspect i see is that it does uh reinforce the kingdom's neutrality uh, in the conflict okay yeah, i you. would just i would
2: just add to that that um when we think about why we have a strategic relationship with saudi arabia the one thing that they have, and it's not to demean it, it's the asset that they have, is a thick checkbook. and We turn to that thick checkbook frequently. The Saudis bankroll at critical times. Governments in Pakistan, in Egypt, in Jordan, in Lebanon, they've even just put money into the central bank of Yemen. and so their ability to provide funds quickly and quietly uh is very important to the um global order that the united states would like to preserve uh and this contribution to yet to uh to the ukraine is just the latest example of a long standing policy that the saudis have had uh and i'm sure somebody from washington went there and talked to them about this and worked with them on how this money could be uh, and what some it should be. Um, and I would argue that this is very similar to the policy that's being pursued by Israel. Uh, Israel, likewise, does not want to take sides in a Russia-Ukraine or what's effectively a, a NATO-Russia dispute. Um, and they have, despite pressure from the West, have declined to send uh, lethal weapons to, uh, to Ukraine. They're happy to send non-lethal aid and financial aid. Uh, but so Saudi, I think this is a reflection of the fact that what uh, Colonel Abbas noted, that much of the Global South, of which I think you could include Saudi Arabia, are not entirely uh, aligned with the West on this uh, conflict in Ukraine and are trying to remain neutral. And I think if I had to take away a message from this, that would be that would be the message Mm -hmm. that um, Saudi Arabia does not want to and really cannot afford to, quite frankly, to take sides in this. And therefore, they're trying to uh, walk a fine Mm -hmm. line in the middle.
1: Okay, good. David, you mentioned the uh, Huawei 5G technology. There's a question here that the technology has been uh, welcomed by the UAE and is being uh, looked at by other GC states. Uh, U.S. The U.S. has advised and lobbied against this. Uh, do you, uh, do you know, why or do you have any? Uh, uh, infra- uh I mean, I, I have been, uh, from a military perspective, I, I see it, but uh, but uh, uh, what as do you think? As
2: far as I know, the Saudis have not taken. I, I may be wrong about this. I, yeah. I don't. I don't think oh, okay. the Saudis have agreed to have five G. Uh,
1: UAE did. UAE did, but not Saudis. You're right. I
2: don't think the Saudis
1: have. Right, you're right. Uh, I, I can add something to it. I know this. Uh, the UAE. Uh, uh, agreed on it a while back because uh, they saw it as uh, if they don't use this 5G technology, they'll be behind the, the rest of the world. And they they realized that 5G is, is needed for AI, for uh, smart cities. They needed to move forward. And they just have to no choice but doing it because the United States was not uh, willing to do that. On the uh, other countries, especially Saudi Arabia, it's, it's very... Uh, um, um, very sensitive issue because once you have 5G, especially on your uh, defense sector, uh, those uh, those uh, you lose the interoperability with U.S. forces. That's anything Chinese, especially on the communication side, will not be able to operate on the U.S. side. The I mean, U.S. will not allow you to plug in with it anyway. So that becomes as difficult. It's a, once you shift to 5G on the Chinese side, uh, you're stuck for a, a long uh, duration and there'll be a lot of uh, restrictions and limitations that comes with it. Um. Okay. Uh, said uh, and do that's something uh, you mentioned, uh, um, uh, Mike. And, and said, uh, do the GCC states view increased relations uh, with Putin as necessary to combat the rapidly deepening Russia-Iranian partnership? Do you see that, you know, the GCC is probably moving it's classic,
3: into... classic, balance of power politics, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you have to play to win. And at the end of the day, um, yes, they, they need to counterbalance the the Russian-Iranian um, relationship. Simply, you know, frankly, the Russians have a great deal of sway in Tehran. Um, so within the uh, corridors of diplomacy, I have no doubt but that the Marshes are going from the GCC capitals to Moscow to try and influence Iran uh, in, such a, uh, in such a way that it becomes less threatening to GCC interests. I'm sure the Saudis and the Emiratis are doing this. Why would they not? Um, at the end of the day, uh, Russia is not going away. It will be a big player uh, in the Middle East for the rest of our lives. They're not leaving Syria. They work closely with Iranians in Syria, of course, to uphold the Bashar al-Assad uh, government. That was something that the Saudis and their GCC partners opposed for a long time. Now, people have had to, because of the success of, excuse me, Russian arms in in Syria, they've had to accept the permanence of the Russian presence there and and Russia's permanent presence on on the eastern Mediterranean coast. So uh, why not use these facts to one's advantage if one can? This goes back to the point I made earlier about how we're really returning to the 19th century uh, in in the 20th century, uh, after the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century and we're returning to the 19th century in terms of the revival of great power politics and the revival of power blocks, and uh, that—that's how I see this. Thank you. Uh,
1: there's also uh, one uh, question for Russia uh, about the uh, competition versus cooperation between uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia on the on the oil uh, uh, sector. I mean, both are—they uh, 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 compete against customer, and they uh, willing to uh, maintain a certain uh, uh, certain. Uh, Uh, Price of oil and also United States uh, Saudi Saudi Arabia Arabia has some uh, pressure from the European and and, uh, maybe United States. Uh, How do you see this balancing uh, uh, act on competition versus cooperation between Russia and Saudi Arabia on uh, and the oil sector?
3: I think that Saudi uh, Russian cooperation within OPEC Plus is is a fact. It's not going to go away. It's essential to both countries. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, without this cooperation, neither country can uh, influence oil prices um, the way they need to influence them. They need higher oil prices, in Riyadh's case, to pay for the economic reform and economic transformation of the country, in the case of the, um, and for the social uh, welfare expenses, which are considerable. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a very generous social welfare state. So does Russia. Russia needs to pay for that, and they now need to pay for these vastly greater military expenditures and for the expansion of their military industry to produce the ammunition the shells and the advanced weapons they need in ukraine so the cooperation on pricing and on production within you know opec plus is going to continue but they're really competing very hard right now for the chinese and indian markets Uh, and in terms of barrels per day uh, exported the the russians have the advantage because uh, they're willing to give large discounts Uh, to both customers, and and that's because they have a lower per barrel production cost. Um, They've driven down, and of course, they have a a less generous social safety net, so uh, their break-even price is, is relatively speaking, lower. People argue about how much this is. Um, The calculations are uh, complicated by the fact that the Russians are pricing everything in rubles, um, and because the Russian economy is much less exposed to foreign trade and much more um, autonomous than say, the US economy or certainly the Gulf economies, um, the whole purchasing power parity thing doesn't work quite as well with Russia. Um, but at the end of the day, the Russians can make money exporting oil with a $20 per barrel uh, discount to both the Chinese and the Indian markets. Uh, and as a result, they're they're dominating both markets in direct competition with the Saudis.
1: Thank you. Thank I you. Just, uh,
2: i just add a couple of things to that. that um, in this relationship, the Saudis are the drivers. Um, both sides need cooperation to maintain pricing, but there was a time a couple of years ago when the Russians decided to go their own way and not to follow the guidance uh, that Saudi wanted. And the Saudis, uh, basically drove the price down dramatically, uh, and showed the Russians that at the end of the day, they have the whip hand, which is true, they do. Uh, and the reason for that is their very low production costs uh, and but more to the point, their ability to turn on and turn off the tap, which their fields for technical reasons, which we don't need to go into, um, they have an ability to turn on and turn off taps much more quickly and with much less long term damage. To your fields than the mm-hmm. Russians do, so it's really the Saudis who drive OPEC, uh, and the Russians uh, who benefit from uh from being from being with them on that, mm-hmm. which is not to say that the Saudis don't benefit as well. The Saudis, one of the achievements, if you will, of uh, the current Saudi oil minister and his brother is the, is this creation of OPEC plus and this bringing uh, Russia into the opec uh, cartel
1: thanks uh, uh, david could you uh, uh, talk a little bit about the chinese currency i mean do you think the chinese currency would uh, be welcome sometimes in the near future uh, in the uh, gulf at least on trading oil uh, not necessarily to replace the uh, the, the dollar 100 percent, but perhaps kind of mix mix uh, mix uh, mix uh, sometimes in dollars, sometimes in the end, try to introduce it slowly on certain certain sectors. How do you see this uh, currency dynamics on the political side?
2: I don't think that the dollar is likely to be replaced as the reserve currency of central banks anytime soon. Uh, It's far and away the dominant currency. The next one is the Euro. Uh, The Chinese currency uh, is is insignificant as a central bank reserve currency at the moment. Uh, And for those who I mean, I think most people know what a reserve currency is. It's the currency that central banks use to move amongst themselves to settle accounts. So I don't see the dollar being threatened anytime soon as as the dominant reserve currency, in part because there really are not any alternatives. Um, Whether or not people would begin to trade oil in Chinese currency uh, with China, um, some people are already doing that. I believe that uh, India is already doing that. I believe that Russia is already doing that. Um, And those are not insignificant transactions. And they're not really going to affect the fact that the dollar remains the dominant global currency. Um, Despite the fact that some people would like that, in fact, many people would like that to happen. Many people believe that the United States has abused its are not fulfilling you know, the responsibility to be a neutral partner or the neutral supervisor, whatever you want to call it, of the um, global currency, and that our using our control of the global reserve currency for our own political purposes uh, has has upset a lot of people, and they would like to find an alternative if they could, but at the moment they can't. So the question you're asking really is about the Saudis. Um, I don't see the Saudis starting, I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't, A, I don't think it's. it would make a big difference financially, it would be a symbolic difference, and it would upset Washington greatly, and therefore I don't think the Saudis will do it. Uh, so that's the, the short answer to my long preamble, is that I don't think the Saudis are going to do it, if they did do it, it's not going to be that big a deal, uh, it would be more symbolic uh, but it would be a big symbolic change. And that—that uh, that is the reason I don't think they would do it anytime soon. You got to remember, the Saudis um, hold a lot of their reserves in there, have a lot of investments. They have a lot of American government bonds. Uh, there are many Saudis who have big investments, personal investments, in the United States. They don't want to see the dollar uh, decline in value anytime soon.
1: That's good. Thank you. Um, there's also a question here from the audience about, um, uh, given that the uh, the European influence uh, um, with uh, uh, with other countries, well, especially like Russia and uh, and China, try to influence them on the business from the business uh, side. Uh, they weren't that influential. Uh, do we? How do you think? How do we? Do we think that GCC or Saudi, or Saudi Arabia? Maybe more successful to engage, uh, you know, China and Russia on the on the business side, oil side, business side. Do you think they're, they'll see more uh, more success there? I mean, that's just I um, I don't know. This is, uh, so that, do you, yeah. Think,
2: do I think that Chinese um, economic connections with the Gulf states will increase? I think they're exploding already. I mean, right.
1: You, would, you, be, I, would, would that influence?
2: I live in Dubai, and I can tell right. you. The number of Chinese, I mean, there's huge, right? Huge well, Chinese community in uh, in Dubai. They have giant malls. They have this thing called the Dragon Mall, mm-hmm. which is not a mall. It's a vast acreage of where you can buy anything you want. From it's it, it's it, uh, it's the biggest mall I've ever seen. Uh, what, yeah,
1: would that equate? Would that uh, equate to influence? Would that direction. equate to? Would that equate to influence, though? You think would they be able uh, to Well, influence? it's economic
2: influence. It's certainly economic influence, political influence? Yeah, I think I think economic influence and political influence go along with each other. So yeah, I think that, they, that the uh, Chinese have political influence in the Gulf. Uh, certainly more than they did you know 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I think they do. Uh, that doesn't does that mean that the American influence is less to some extent? yes. I mean, to some extent influence is a zero-sum game. And if one guy gets more influence, by definition, the other person has less. So the Americans do have less influence. Uh, there was a time when the United States was the only game in town. I think Mike and I can both remember that from the early days in our career, when the dominance of the United States in the politics and economics of the Gulf states was uh, completely unrivaled.
3: That's not the case today.
1: Okay.
3: I would just add one thing that you know. Because of the structure of the Russian economy, um, you know, it's essentially competing economically with the GCC countries. Its major exports are exactly what they export: uh, oil and natural gas. Um, it's the dominant natural gas exporter. Uh, much of that now going through the power of Siberia pipeline and other pipelines directly to Chinese markets. And again, it's competing, you know, with Qatar and with other GCC countries, uh, including in the future, I think the Saudis, uh, for the LNG market and and for the uh, pipeline gas export market. So uh, the only area I see changing, in case the Russians actually win in some fashion in Ukraine, is in um, the uh, arms market. They are the largest uh, arms exporter in the world after the United States, and they'll try to leverage uh, any success in Ukraine to to boost their arms exports, including to uh, the GCC countries. And what they'll be pushing, of course, is their high-end aircraft, you know, the. SU-35 and the other uh, aircraft they're using so liberally right now in the Ukraine war, plus munitions, um, anti-drone equipment like the Ponser, um armored vehicles. But this will only be possible if they actually win in Ukraine. And, and of course, uh, I think we're still relatively speaking in the early days of the war. So that's an open question. Uh,
1: a follow-up I would question. I
2: mm-hmm. one, one final thing is that um, the Saudis expect oil demand globally to increase okay again despite the talk of decarbonization the saudis who know the oil market extremely well anticipate that global oil demand will increase uh, and so they are actually increasing their production capacity and so there's an expanding pie uh, i don't know michael may know whether the russians can or plan to expand their production capacity uh but the point is that the pie is getting bigger and there could well be room
3: for both the russians and the saudis Mm -hmm. that's Uh, an excellent point i mean the russians think they can boost their production um they're certainly working mm -hmm. on it um obviously uh the circumstances of the war making that harder because they they can't get some of the advanced uh, pranking technology in particular uh that they'd like to get but uh people who bet against uh, Russian science and technology have often lost in the past because uh, they've been very inventive, um, often coming up with technological solutions that parallel ours but go um, in, in different directions. I, many years ago, I was involved in a, an a operation to acquire MiG-29 Fulcrum C aircraft uh, from the former Soviet Union it was back in the 90s. And uh, when we got a close look at these planes for the first time, it was remarkable how much they differed. Uh, from the F sixteen, which is then our most advanced aircraft, So the Russians are capable of coming up with um, interesting advanced technology in both the civilian and and uh, the military spheres. And uh, I think uh, David's right. I mean, oil is not going away, and there will probably be room, most well, certainly room for both Russian increased Russian and Saudi exports in the future.
1: So Mike and David, both of you guys served in the embassies in the Middle East and especially in the Gulf region. Now, the recent visit by the Secretary of Defense, basically it was like I mentioned earlier, Anan's visit. And he's visiting Israel and Jordan and Egypt. And before that, there was a multiple exercises between Israel, and the United States that to counter perhaps Iranian threat and so on. So, if you're sitting in the uh, in the embassies and in the Gulf, looking at uh, you know Secretary of Defense is moving into the region and discussing uh, regional uh, stability and uh, U.S. strategy in the region and countering Iran, and not visit to the Gulf states, your post, what do, what do you say to that?
2: You know, I'd have to understand why. I mean, mm-hmm. was it meant as some kind of a slight, or had he already been there recently and he felt he didn't need mm-hmm. to go again? Um, you know, the relationship between the Biden administration and Saudi Arabia is not a good one. It has been um, tense for a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's fair. that's so, I, mean, I think that's I a good thing. So. But that, that said, I don't think the Saudis have any plan to uh, distance them. The Saudis would like to have a good relationship with the United States, okay? We, I know. An that. ambassador.
3: They, they, a, an ambassador.
2: They, they want to improve their relationship with the United States. True. They believe that the Biden administration has made that difficult. The, the Biden administration would argue that the Saudis made that difficult by the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So, I mean, it's a chicken or the egg thing, but the Saudis believe that it's that they should get over the Khashoggi incident and that they should begin to rebuild the relationship. I think the the Biden administration is divided. I'm I'm not speaking for them, but it seems to me from what I can see that there are people in the administration who would like to improve Saudi relations relations with Saudi, and there are people who would still like to consider Saudi a pariah state for whatever reason. Um, so I think and that's something the U.S. government is going to have to work out for itself, that the Saudis would welcome an improved relationship with the United States. They understand that the United States has, remains the only world power that has the expeditionary capacity to help them in a time of need. That The United States is the power that keeps the choke points for the flow of oil open. So and that most of their military equipment and all of, almost all of their military training comes from the United States, that the dollar is where they invest their money, that the dollar is where they trade their oil, that the swift currency banking system, if you will, a credit system uh, is, um, is dominated by the United States. So they are not interested in having bad relations with the United States. So I don't think that they are going to take any great umbrage at fact that Secretary Austin didn't come to see them. And you'd have to ask, you'd have to look at the details as to why he didn't come.
1: Right. Uh, I agree. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, that's actually my last question. Uh, I want uh, uh, David and uh, Mike, do you have any last parting thoughts here before I close the session?
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to chat. Thank with you. you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, thank you both, and thanks for all our uh, listeners, uh, and uh, until next time, have a good all
3: day. Right. All right. Take care.